We can turn in your Bibles over to Titus, Titus chapter 2. I want to read our text once again for us as we work our way. We'll probably be here one more uh, one more Sunday. But Titus chapter 2, and uh, we're looking at verses 11 to 15. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Paul is writing here to his fellow worker in the faith, um, young pastor, and Paul wanted to encourage him uh, through this letter. And last week, um, just in way of, of, of review, we worked our way through the message up to a certain point. And several of you have asked me questions this week. And so we're going to finish what we started last uh, week. Uh, but in case you weren't here last week, I just want to give you a little kind of a, a eyedropper full of what we covered. Uh, we... we we started last week speaking about the world's religions, and we talked about how they're based on fear. And anybody, if you do any study at all about the world religions, you understand that the motivating factor is fear. And the, the idea basically is the sinner has a, this, this God who is mad at them, and somehow he, the sinner, has to satisfy that God's hostility. And their God is angry at them because they've been violated. And they're vengeful because they've been offended. And so the religions of the world seek to provide a means to satisfy this angry deity that they serve. And they do it in the most desperate ways. And that's really the heart of any false religion. Uh, you can tell a false religion right away by simply asking the question, what do they require of you? If they require you to do something, D-O, you yourself, your works, somehow earns favor with God, you know that it's a false religion. You know that it's a religion that's not biblical. You know that it's a religion that is somehow connected to Satan. Paul called it the the doctrines of demons. And when anybody is involved in a false religion, it may just look like something, you know, man-made on the surface, but we know that at the very heart, it's Satan-inspired. Because Satan is the messenger who brings the message that somehow to appease your angry deity, if you work hard enough, if you do enough good works, if you, if you try your hardest to be religious and you follow the do's and the don'ts and you do everything you can within your own means, eventually God will say, okay, you've done enough. And that's just not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. False religions inevitably are religions where 
the idea of grace and mercy, the idea of loving kindness, the idea of forgiveness and compassion and sensitivity, all those things as it relates to their God is totally absent. They can't understand it because their God is an angry, vengeful God. And beloved, I'm here to tell you this morning that Christianity is the opposite. Our Christian God, the God of the Bible, is totally different because it comes from the true God, who as His very nature, at His very core, is compassionate. At His very heart, His inner being is is merciful. That's who He is. He's gracious. He's loving. We don't have to answer that question about a God who's angry and vengeful and somehow seeking to destroy us. And by doing so, he finds great pleasure in that. Unless somehow you do something moralistically or ceremonially to appease him. Christianity is not that kind of a religion, beloved. Our God does not stand on the initial posture of animosity toward his creation and hatred and bitterness and vengeance. He doesn't want, he doesn't desire because we've blasphemed, we've offended him, which we have. By our very nature, we're sinners. And we've offended a holy God. But I want you to understand that that God, that that offense doesn't make our God angry and wanting to express himself in our destruction and in our devastation and our condemnation to death and hell. He isn't up there wringing his hands going, man, I can't wait to send another sinner to hell. That's not the God we serve. That's not the God of the Bible. Rather, our God is a Savior. Our God is a gracious God. And that's the one thing that Paul is pointing out here to Timothy. In verse 11, when he says, For the grace of God has appeared. How did it appear? Well, here he tells us, That that appearance is referring to the incarnation of Christ. When Christ came down, forsaking all that he knew in heaven, came down and, and, and entered a human body, the very God who created us, and lived 30 some years here on this sin stained earth, so that one day he could go to a cross. And endure physical and spiritual pain for us. Our God, at the very heart, is a saving God. We need to remember that. That God has mercy on those that hate Him. That God has grace and mercy toward those that have offended him, that have blasphemed him, that even ignore him at times. Those who violate his commandments. God doesn't say, okay, that's it. I've had it. No. He reaches out to us through his marvelous, amazing grace because of his love. The Bible says that our God has no pleasure 
in the death of the wicked. No pleasure at all. The Bible tells us that our God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Our God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge and that, that of the blessed truth of the gospel and deliver, be delivered from the wages of their sin, which is death. I mean, last week we looked at several verses, but I mean, one that really just cries this and, and yells this is John 3.16, and we know it so well, and we've seen it at ball games and NFL things and all sorts of things, banners hanging up all over the place. But it really speaks to the heart of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God saw a world of sinners. When he looked at the world, he saw a world of sinners. And he saw that it was directly sinning against him. It offended him. It blasphemed him. It dishonored him. It violated him. It broke his law, and yet, rather than in anger, squash us like a bug, he reached out to us in love. And he sought not to destroy us, but to what? To save us. See, the simple message of Christianity is that God saves men from sin. We heard it this morning in Crisanto's testimony. That's the Christian message. That should be the message of the church. We don't have a bunch of lists of do's and don'ts. Oh, you want to come to our church where you can't do this, you can't do that. We're not about that. The message that God saves sinners from their sin is the message that our missionaries carry to the uttermost parts of the world. It's the message that all, that has rung throughout all church history. The simple message that God saves what? Sinners. God saves sinners. Jesus came and his, or God came and his name was Jesus. And that name Jesus says that he will save his people from their sins. Jesus himself said that he came to seek and to save what? That which is lost. And we looked at various verses. One was 1 Timothy 2, 3, where it says, God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Isaiah 43, 11 said, and there is no Savior besides me. God enjoys speaking of himself as a Savior. Micah chapter 7, it says, Who is a God like thee who pardons iniquity? Aren't you glad that our God is willing to pardon our sinfulness? I mean, why would we be here if he wasn't? I don't know about you, but I'd be, I'd be hiding somewhere from this God if he wasn't a gracious God. Who is a saving God like thee? Micah records. See, we have to remember that nothing God has ever done and nothing God will ever do in time displays the fullness of His glory as does salvation. That's why He's left us here. That's why we read earlier in 
chapter 2, about all these different age groups, all these different genders of people, and, and telling them how to live in a way that's honoring to the Lord. Because He wants us, while we're here on earth, to be adorned with His grace. So that when people look at our lives, they don't look at somebody who's, you know, legalistic, religious, pious person. That doesn't, that's not going to draw people to the Savior. That's going to repel them. He wants to see men and women and children who have been converted by the glorious grace of Christ and the power of the gospel. And when they see that, they see God on display. That's the heart of God to save sinners. We looked at a couple definitions. Just way of review, God's grace was his unmerited favor. That's kind of the classic definition. God giving us something that we don't deserve. We also looked at mercy. God is, God's mercy is his withheld justice. Mercy is God withholding something from us that we do deserve as far as judgment goes. Grace is God giving us something that we don't deserve. God's grace, his amazing grace, is the simple fact that God showed favor and blessing on us, even though we did not deserve it in any way. We didn't earn it in any way. What we deserve, we deserved his judgment. We deserved his wrath. But what did he give us? He gave us his grace. He gave us his mercy. We spoke how God operates not on the merit system that the world operates. You know, the harder you you work, the bigger the promotion, the more money you have, all that stuff. That's the merit system. You know, the harder you practice, the better you can play, the more you're going to get accolades in sports. That's the merit system. God doesn't operate on that system. He operates on the system of substitution. He looks at us and says, you know what, there's no hope for you. You can work till your dying day. You're never going to be able to appease the sins that have offended me. You can't pay for your own sin. It's impossible. I have to substitute someone else for you that is willing and able to pay for your sin, that being the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the perfect sacrifice, preordained even before the foundation of the world to become the Savior. And so we come to God's present grace. And we looked at how, from a sinner's point of view, when it says there in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, the one thing we looked at was we went through the Gospel of John and we saw where Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And he also says, whosoever comes to me, I won't cast out. See, there's a lot of people who subscribe to the doctrine of election, which is a biblical doctrine. The idea that God, before the foundation of the world, Ephesians tells us that he set his love upon some. He chose them out to be his people. But that's not all the Bible says. The Bible also says that whosoever comes to me, I won't cast out. And so you have a tension there. 
Because if you go full haul, you know, bore into the election idea, you end up in a fatalistic attitude. Well, why do anything? If God's got it all figured out, why should we go witness? Why should we pray? Why should we do anything? If God is sovereign, he's all-powerful, he controls everything. Sounds like an egomaniac. All those things are true about God. He controls all. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. All those things are true. Election is a true doctrine. But don't allow the doctrine of election to take you into the fatalistic camp that, that basically tells, tells you to give up. Don't do anything. Because we still have scriptures that says, whosoever comes to me, I won't cast out. It doesn't say, whosoever, if you're elect. <laughs> it doesn't say that. See, it's not our job to discover who's chosen and who's not. It's our job to take the gospel of Christ to a lost and dying world who is desperately in need of his forgiveness and his salvation. See, it's a matter of faith. From the human side, it's a matter of faith. That's what the Bible teaches. It's a matter of belief. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. And what we tell sinners today is the same thing the apostles told sinners. What did Jesus and the apostles say to those who were sinners? They said what? Believe. Believe. And and in believing, what I mean by that, it includes repentance. It includes turning from sin. It includes obedience, submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. All that is involved in us believing in Christ. And God is a a saving God. It says that not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. John 3, verse 14, it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Verse 15 says, and whoever, whoever, wide open invitation there, believes, may in him have eternal life. And that's followed by John 3.16. John 6.51. John 1.29. John the Baptist himself said, behold the Son of God who takes away what? the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And so we talked about, well, wait a minute, we got into the discussion a little bit about, well, is, is, did, did Christ die for the whole world? It says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 5 and 6, there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, Men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Unqualified statement. No exception there. 1 John 2.2 says, He himself is our propitiation or satisfaction for our sins, and not ours only, but for those of the whole world. And we talked about the idea that, you know what, if you believe when Jesus died on the cross, 
he died for the whole world, are you saying that you're a universalist? The idea that everybody's going to heaven because Jesus died for the whole world. And we broke that down a little bit and we said, well, people benefit from the sacrifice of Christ. People benefit from God's grace, even though they don't come to Christ for salvation. The very fact that they're walking around living and breathing is God's grace upon them. They're lucky they're not dead. We're lucky we're not dead. Why? Because we violated God's commands. We violated God's orders to us. And so as a result of that, he doesn't treat us like the angels. Immediately, as the angels violated the principles of God and the law of God, he judged them immediately. He doesn't treat us like the angels. The angels can't taste of God's grace. There's no being saved for an angel. Once you cross that line and you become a demon, you're always going to be a demon. They, they can't come back and repent. But as human beings, as part of his creation, God is pointing out to us that, you know what? He loved creation. He loved everyone so much that he sent someone to die for the sins of the world. In 1 John 2, 2, it says, He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but for those of the whole world. And see, people in the universalist camp say, see, there it is. Jesus paid for the sins of the whole world. That's not what it's saying. That's not what it's saying at all. Someone asked me after last week's message, would you believe in limited atonement? Do you believe that the payment that Christ paid on the cross, did he pay the sins for all the world or did he just pay for the sins for those who were chosen? I believe the scripture teaches very clearly, and we're going to look at that right now, that when Christ died on the cross, he paid for the sins of those who are the elect. It's very clear. And we'll look at these verses. You say, well, how does that jive with what you taught last week? You said that he's the savior of all the world. That's exactly right. He is. He's the only mediator there is. He's the only savior there is. There there can't be another savior. And so when it says there in John 2, 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for those of the whole world. In other words, he paid the sins for the elect. But you know what? If you're not part of the elect, if you're just somebody else, there's no other way to be saved other than the sacrifice of Christ. He's the only one that is available. It tells us that there's only one mediator in 1 Timothy. One God and one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not a second or a third or a fourth. There's not many doors that lead to heaven. There's only one. And so, in in, in that reasoning, he is the only one for the whole world. He gave his ransom, his life, a ransom for all. In the Old Testament, when you have the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, they do sacrifices, and they basically use that that time, generally, 
to satisfy God for a temporary time. Now, everybody that fell under that whole, that whole covering of Yom Kippur doesn't mean they were saved. It's speaking in a naturalistic sense. And so we see that Christ did die for the whole world, but his atonement, his efficacy, the, 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 the real practicality of him paying for people's sins begins to limit itself. 1 Timothy 4.10, at the end of the verse, it says, The living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. So all of a sudden we come from John 3.16, for God to love the world. And then here it says, he's the Savior of all men, especially believers. Qualifying statement there. In some way, all men enjoy the grace of God. I mean, they breathe the same air we breathe. They get up just like we get up. That's all because of the grace of God. It's common grace. So there's a sense in which the saving work of Christ has temporarily purchased deliverance from judgment by God for everybody. Because everybody's still here. If that weren't the case, as soon as you sinned, your life would be snuffed out. It'd be game over. No grace at all. And in the Old Testament, they would use that day of atonement to kind of atone for the sins of the nation in, in the sense that God forgave their sins as a nation and set aside his judgment temporarily. But it doesn't guarantee that everybody in the nation was saved. That was a matter of faith. That was a matter of election. But it does delay God's immediate judgment. And we closed last week by looking at John 15. In John 15, verse 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no man than this, than one lay down his life for his, the whole world. No, it says for his friends. And who are his friends? It says, you are my friends if you do what I command. All of a sudden, you see the thing beginning to narrow. Jesus isn't saying here, a greater love has no man because I laid down my life for everybody. No, he said he laid it down for his friends. Who are his friends? Those who are obedient to him. Those who do what he has commanded. What does he command us to do? To believe and be saved. Jesus said that over and over again. Repent. Follow me. Obey me. If you do that, you're my friends. And down there in verse 15, just so we understand... What's going on here? He makes sure that he puts this in there. By the way, you didn't choose me, I chose you. We're right back to that paradox of a matter of faith from the human side and a matter of choice and election from God's side. On the one hand, we see whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting eternal life. Who is going to do that? 
those who are elect. The word atonement in the Old Testament, just so you understand, is a very general term. It wasn't really specific. Used a lot of times of the, the nation of Israel. It's not even really used in the New Testament. There's one place in Romans 5.11, and we translate it reconciliation, which means bringing back to a proper standing with someone. And when you stop and you think about it, when Christ died on the cross, you have to ask yourself this question. Was that a potential atonement? Or was that a very real atonement? Was that a particular atonement? We believe the Bible teaches, I believe the Bible teaches, that it was a particular atonement. It wasn't a potential atonement. Those who would teach it's a potential atonement say this. Well, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, and he died for everybody. He paid the sins for the entire world. But the only time that you get to cash in on that forgiveness that he paid for is when you in your sinful state, somehow conclude that you need a Savior and you begin to seek after God and you begin to express your, your, they call it, free will and acknowledge that Jesus needs to be your Savior and then, therefore, you'll be saved based on your choice of God. Because He made it available on the cross that everybody, no matter who you are, could come to the Savior. Everybody's sins are paid for, but that sinful Uh, blotting out that forgiveness is not realized until you, of your own accord, put your faith and trust in Christ. That's what they would teach. That's why John said here, or in in John it's recorded, Jesus said, remember, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Just so we're, we're, we're on the straight up here. It's very important that you understand that. So do you believe that when Christ died on the cross, he died Everybody, in one sense he did, temporarily. His death on the cross allows us to experience the grace of God, that common grace. We're still here, we're still breathing, even though we violated his law. But when you carry it to a further position, you say, well, wait, but did he literally pay for everybody's sins? You'd have to say no, or everybody would be in heaven. So his sacrifice, in some sense, is unlimited in that everybody kind of expresses, it comes under the umbrella of God's common grace, but when it comes down to paying for sins, it was particular. It was individual. This is interesting. Even John Calvin, you know, where you get Calvinism from, (laughs) John Calvin, in his commentary on 1 John 2.2, says that this, the provision of Christ on the cross was sufficient for all. It was sufficient for all. And the reason it was sufficient for all was because there was nothing else. (laughs) There was nothing else to provide for the sacrifice of sin, for the forgiveness of sin. But there's limited application in that sacrifice. The application of his sacrifice is limited to those who believe. And so you stop and you say, well, who are those who are going to believe? Well, the answer clearly is not everybody. 
right? Or we wouldn't have hell. We wouldn't have unbelievers. Even 2 Thessalonians, Paul wrote it, not all have faith. Not everybody is going to believe. So in that sense, this unlimited sacrifice, this opportunity for many is limited in some sense to those who believe, and not everybody is going to believe. So when the scripture talks about the atonement, or it talks about the death of Christ, I want you to see this morning that it doesn't always say the world. It doesn't always refer to the whole world. Isaiah 53.11 says this, that Jesus justified the many. Notice it says the many, not all, the many, as he will bear their iniquities. It says he bore the sins of many. That's a stark difference to bearing the sins of everybody, paying for the sins of everybody. Even in Matthew twenty twenty eight, it says this, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life A ransom for what? Many. Not all. Many. Matthew 26, 28. This is my blood. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Not all. Many. Hebrews 9, 28. It even says, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of the whole world. No, it says many. And so you have to be exact when you're studying the Word of God. You can't just throw verses, pull verses out here and there willy-nilly and say, oh, this, this proves my point. Scripture is telling us that the atonement, the sacrifice, will never ultimately reach everybody. It won't pay for the sins of everybody, but many or some. You say, well, how many is many? (laughs) One word, it's the elect. That's who the many are. And get out of your mind that it's going to be a lot of people because it's not. The Bible says few are those. The elect are the ones who believe because they've been chosen before the foundation of the world. And they've been shown the grace and mercy of God and he grants them that saving grace and that saving faith and he grants them the ability to repent of their sin. That's why in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we can read that and we can read it wholeheartedly and proclaim it, that they're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. Something God has gifted to us. So when you begin to look at Scripture, and you look at in its context, you begin to understand that Christ died for the whole world in one sense, but also efficaciously he died for the elect. Even in, our, in, in, in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, it says right there, who gave himself for who? For us. To redeem us from the lawlessness and to purify for himself. Look at what it says. A people. It's very particular. He's drawn the boundary lines. 
for his own possession. So it's gone from, we've read scriptures last week and this week, that from the world, the whole world, Christ died for the world, for God so loved the world, down to many, and now we're down to us. That's why in Isaiah 53, 8, it says, He died for the transgressions of, what? My people. Very particular. And look over at John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Hopefully you can understand the ramifications if you get this wrong. (laughs) I mean, it affects everything from your prayer life to your evangelism to everything. John chapter 10, look at verse 11. We we, we touched a little bit on this, but I just want to re-examine this because I think it's important that we put this in our minds. Jesus says there in verse 11, John 10, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life, oh, for the sheep. For the sheep. Verse 15, even as the Father knows me and I am the Father, I know the Father and I lay down my life, what? Not for the world, but for the many, but for the sheep. See what it says there? That's that's so important that we understand that. Verse 26, you don't believe because you're not my what? You're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give to them, what? Eternal life. And they shall never perish. See, the Bible is very clear, and it says that Christ died for his sheep. And even over in John 17, verse 9, when Jesus is praying, he says, I am praying for them. But he tells us who he's not praying for, too. Look at this. This might blow your mind. I am not praying for the world. Wow. Jesus isn't praying for the world? No, he's not praying for the world. I'm not interceding for the world. That's what he says. But for those, what? Whom you have given me, for they are yours. Very particular, very individualistic, very boundaries right there. I mean, it's, it's, it's the church. He's interceding for those whom he's chosen. Even down in verse 19. It says, for their sake I sanctify or consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through the word. So not just the apostles, but all who are going to come to faith in Christ. So he says very clearly, I'm not going to be praying for the world. I'm praying for those whom you have given me very narrow. See, Jesus Christ, you have to remember, he's a high priest. What does a high priest do? He intercedes on behalf of the people before God. That's what a priest does. 
That's what the role of a priest is. In other words, you know what? The people can't come directly into God's presence. Remember in the Old Testament, they had the Holy of Holies and all that stuff? Well, who was allowed in there? Everybody? No, they couldn't go in there and start singing praises. They'd be snuffed out. They needed a priest to go in there, someone who was appointed by God. And he kind of was the mediator between the people and their God. He would go in and do the sacrificing on behalf of the people. When Jesus Christ came, he is the ultimate high priest. When he came as priest, he also came as a sacrifice, and he was a perfect sacrifice. So when Christ died on the cross, that's why at the end when he was hanging there, and before he gave up his last breath, he uttered the words, it is what? It is finished. That ended the priestly duties right there. There's no, no, more, no longer a need for a priest to go in between God and the people. Matter of fact, we're called the kingdom of what? Priests. (laughs) And so who is he the high priest for? Who is he making sacrifice for? Well, it doesn't say the whole world. It says those whom were given to him. Those whom were elect. Those whom were part of the church. He intercedes for those whom God has given to him. Look over at Ephesians chapter 5. It's a very similar idea here. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. And it's in the context of marriage and husbands and wives and everything. But I want you to listen to this because it, it's so, it just marks it out for us very clearly. Even when we're talking about family and marriage and everything, what does the Scripture say? Paul writes here in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, what? Love your wives, right? Amen, right? Love your wives. That was kind of weak. Amen? Amen, all right. Love your wives as what? Christ loved the world. Oh, it doesn't say that, does it? No. Loved the church. And gave himself up for her, the church. He died for the sheep. He died for the church. He prays for the ones whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world. He gave his life for the church. He didn't give his life for the whole world. You can see where it just keeps constricting narrower and narrower. So you can go to the scripture and you can see where there is an indication that God so loved the world. And we looked at those verses and he died to reconcile the world and he paid the ransom for all. And there's an extent to which salvation extends to the whole world. We call that common grace, temporary blessing, withholding of God's immediate judgment giving them space and time to repent and believe. But there's also those verses that we looked at here that says that he died for the many. And you ask, well, who are the many? The many are those who believe. Well, who believes? They are the elect, the one the Father has given to him, namely the church. 
Do you know the church was predetermined before there even was a church? <laughs> In eternity past? And that's how we have to understand the sacrifice of Christ. I mean, the, the question is this. I mean, in all honesty, why did God choose some and not the rest? We don't know that. But you can also ask the question, why did God choose anybody? <laughs> why in the world would he choose anybody? Especially because they're not, they didn't do anything for him. Right? Salvation isn't based on something we do. See, that's what I'm trying to show you. It's the grace of God. It's in the heart of God that he desires us to be saved. Now, how that all works out, I mean, if you, if you completely understand that, wow, that's just amazing. How God harmonizes his sovereign choice and our volition with his purposes and election and all that stuff, I don't understand. But what I want you to see in Titus is that we serve a God who saves. And he longs to save people and free them from the penalty of sin. That's our God. That's why he is so different. And yet, in the same frame of mind, if they don't come to the Savior, they are justly punished for their sins. I think that we, we have to be reminded as we talk about this that there is a, is a world outside these doors that is lost and quickly on their way to hell. Um, so when we see the appearing of God's grace, it's first, it's a sovereign grace. What do I mean by that? It's, it's, it's sovereign. It's, it's from God. We, we sing the, the, uh, the, the hymn or the chorus uh, in, in Christ alone. And, and the one phrase in there, it talks about no power on earth or hell, right? Can, can, can kind of interfere here. Nothing can interfere with our salvation. It's a sovereign grace. It began long, long time ago in eternity past. You can go back to the Old Testament and you can find. See, our, our, our problem is that sometimes we think, well, we live in the age of grace. Well, we do. We live in the church age. God sent his son and we can experience salvation readily. And I hear people say once in a while, I'm glad I don't live in the Old Testament, man, because I'd be dead. No, you wouldn't. God is a gracious God. I don't care if it's in the New Testament or the Old Testament. Don't think for a minute that God didn't save in the Old Testament. He did. And he saved not on a basis of works. He saved by faith through his grace. That's why in Micah 7, 18, we read that verse, Who is a God like thee? That's the Old Testament. Who what? Pardons iniquity, passes over, does not retain his anger, but delights in his kindness. It's the kindness of God we read last week that leads us to repentance. Satan is the opposite. He delights in evil, wickedness, slaughter, hell, all that. That's why his religions are based on fear. Ours, ours are based on the love of God. 
mean, think of it this way. The God of the Bible will be the judge. He will be the judge one day. But he would rather be the Savior today and not have to judge. Trust me, he will be the executioner one day. He will, the Bible says, destroy both body and soul in hell. And that doesn't speak of annihilation. But he would rather, much rather, be the deliverer. He would much rather provide the way out. Our God will truly hold men accountable for their sin. All those who will refuse him and his free offer of salvation through grace by faith. He desires to forgive. He is justice. Just. He is righteous. And he will carry out that verdict on the sinner. And he will do so justly. But he would much rather, it's, it's much rather desire of God that he would forgive you. Why? Because it's his nature to love. It's his nature to forgive. He longs to display his grace through your life so that you can testify before people that, man, I've been saved by the grace of God. It's nothing I've done. It's based on his gift of eternal life to me. Who gets the honor? Who gets the glory? It's God. It's always God. And you can tell real quickly when someone's off on the wrong, wrong foot when they begin, as, even as Crisanto alluded to in his testimony. Sometimes you hear testimonies and who's it about? It's not about God, it's about them. It's about all the bad things they've done. It's about this, it's about that. And Oh yeah, yeah, then God saved me. <laughs> What's that about? A testimony should give glory and praise to God who saved you. It should be a, a way to put on display His grace, His love, His mercy. So Jesus sent... God sent Jesus to the cross because his justice had to be satisfied. And Jesus died on the cross satisfying the justice of God, which required death. See, sometimes we get it mixed up. We think, okay, we have this debt that we owe Jesus. No, we don't owe Jesus the debt. We owe God the Father the debt. And Jesus steps in between and says, you know what? You can't pay this debt. You can never pay it. So I'm going to pay it for you. Use the illustration once in a while of, I said, what if, what if I was going to give you a, a check for $1,000? Well, I could refuse it. I wouldn't take it. People that talk about their free will, they say that. And what they're forgetting is that there's a mediator between them and God. It's not a direct transaction. Our sin is owed, our debt of sin is owed to God. He will be the one carrying out judgment on our sin. Christ steps in between us and says, you know what, I'm going to pay your debt. It would be like if you, a better illustration would be if you had a credit card debt of $500. You got your bill today and it, you looked at it, wow, I owe $500. I got to pay it on the 15th. So you were going to call the credit card company and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to wire you the money. I'm going to send you the money. I'm going to pay off this debt. And you call them and they say, uh, sorry, sir, it's already been paid. 
Well, I didn't pay it. Well, it doesn't matter. It's been paid. (laughs) In the meantime, somebody who knew you had that debt sent a check to the visa company and they cashed this other person's check. You had no idea what was going on. And it was accounted to you and your account, $500, making the balance zero. You can't call the credit card company and say, you know what? That's not fair. You didn't check with me first. Do you think they're going to care? No. Why? Because you owe them the debt. All they care about is the debt is paid. They don't care if your neighbor pays it, your grandma pays it, who pays it. They just want the debt paid. That's how it is between us and God. We owe God the Father a debt, and Jesus Christ stepped in before the foundation of the world and paid for our debt. Because before the foundation of the world, he chose us to be in him. His sovereign grace is sovereign because Christ himself is called the Savior Just look at verse 4, chapter 1. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Chapter 2, verse 13. Right there in our text. Our great God and Savior, who? Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 6. Once again, it mentions Jesus Christ our Savior. But you know what? Jesus Christ is not the only Savior. You say, what? Jesus Christ is not the only Savior. God is called Savior in Titus 1.3. says right there, Titus chapter 1, verse 3. God our Savior. Also 2.10. God our Savior. Verse, chapter 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. It's very important that we understand that, that God is a saving God. That he wants us to experience salvation. 1 John 4.14 says, And we beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be what? The Savior of the world. It's God's saving grace. We're not going to take time, but you can look at all those verses there that I listed in the Old Testament. And it speaks of the saving grace of God. Because sometimes we think, oh, the saving grace of God is just available in the New Testament. No, God is the same, beloved. He operated the same way in the Old Testament. They looked forward to the cross, we look back. In Genesis 49, 18, it says, For thy salvation I wait, O Lord. God just wasn't some angry man or some angry God in the Old Testament, just judge, judge, judge. No, he was a saving God. He's the same God that we serve today. His grace is saving. It's also sufficient. It's sufficient. That's why we can wholeheartedly go out of this place and tell anybody, you know what? There's a great salvation. If, if you will just put your faith, your trust in Christ. Because God so loved the world that he gave his son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
Romans 10.13 says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Don't allow our theology to get in the way of our evangelism. That's not how God intended it. I pray that you have tasted of God's amazing grace. Next week we'll continue through our verses here back in Titus. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that you would help us to um, have that burden that you so readily show us through your word that we need to go out of this place and share the gospel with those who have yet to hear. Father, we don't go out of this place looking for those who are elect because we don't know who they are. And you haven't told us who they are. We don't have, they don't have a yellow stripe running down their back. So, Lord, that should motivate us to run out of this place with even more boldness and share the goodness of the gospel with everybody that we come across because we know that some will be elect. Some will come to faith in Christ. And what a glorious thing that you would choose to use someone like us to share that glorious message and see that life transformed. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding in these things because they're deep things, they're hard things to comprehend. And yet that's what your word teaches very clearly. Father, I pray this morning if there's anyone here who is yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, Lord, that they would be obedient to the call of the gospel, that they would come and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would understand that he paid entirely for their sin. And that when they, by faith, put their belief in him, that their sins are canceled out. They're buried in the depths of the sea. No matter how bad they are, he is sufficient to save to the uttermost. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.